are listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, oh, we're back. Really, we're back, Brian. We don't have a false start again. Okay, our apologies. We had uh, technical difficulties uh, earlier, so we've just restarted the show here. Welcome to Behind the Lens. And thankfully, Brian is here today when we have technical difficulties uh, because he does know how to fix them. So, and of course, when Brian's here, we hear from Jar Jar Binks, too. So, welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can read my reviews and interviews online, in print, in the U.S., across the globe. But every Monday, you will find me right here on Adrenaline Radio at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time with... Interviews as we go, interviews, interesting guests as we go behind the lens and below the line in movie making, filmmaking, and even music. So welcome, welcome. This is a, this is kind of a laid back uh, show today. It's I've been doing so many interviews lately because talent is is frantically traveling, and so many of the talent I've been interviewing are from out of town. Uh, that it was a little hard to logistically schedule them to do a live call-in today. But we're going to take a look at two fabulous films. Power Rangers, as as I teased over the weekend, it is Morphin Monday. And then the latest from screenwriter and producer James Gunn, but directed by Craig McLean, The Belco Experiment, which as I told James and as I told Greg, I want more blood for the sequel, and I hope there's a sequel. But before we get to Belco, um, Brian, are you feeling better this week? We, we miss Brian. Brian was ill last week. Yeah, um, I was in the building a little prior to your program, maybe about an hour, and then I just started feeling really, really sick. And then I, I, I hard. I mean, I could power through it. Sometimes, whenever I'm I'm sick, I, I could just show up. I'm I'm okay with that, but. This was one of those where I I couldn't be away from a restroom for too long. I and that it's not graphic. I mean, ah! you can picture what was going on, but boy, I and and it all came to a head here. I was sitting in the studio maybe about 40 minutes before you normally get here. I was finishing up some homework. I didn't even go to school that day either later on that afternoon. But yes, I am feeling a lot better. I am I am happy to be here. And uh I apologize for missing last week. Like I said, I was here, but I just well, as as well, you should apologize, especially since we had station owner Nick on the board, and he actually hung up on Hunter Adams when he called in. You know, you can't let those executives touch anything electronic. No, that's why we keep them. Uh, we keep them downstairs, bar them out from coming. I'll here. tell you. So, since you were last here, have you had a chance to check out Disneyland at all? I did go Thursday, and uh, Disneyland is in the midst of uh, the Food and Wine Festival. Ah, so not too much Star Wars or anything uh, Star Wars related. There is still a lot of Rogue One stuff, just because it mm-hmm. ha- it's going to come out on Blu-ray. I think either next week. Yeah, it's it's imminent. Yeah, because ne- this week it's. Um, you mean you don't have that date memorized? No, I don't. I mean, well, <laughs> school. I have dates for school memorized right now. But Fantastic Beasts comes out tomorrow, so that's yeah. why I know that. So they didn't want to compete with that, right? Obviously, so it's going to be next week. So it is the second of April. If that is the next Tuesday, let me check here real quick. Yeah, the the fourth. The fourth for sure. I'm pretty sure the fourth is when it comes out because they want to do the fourth. Well, that's not May fourth, but no, 
But still. Yeah, so they're pushing Rogue One stuff. They're, they're actually, which is pretty interesting, they have a lot of Christmas Rogue One stuff out. I think things that didn't sell around the Christmas season, they're kind of pushing it out there. Not discount. Disneyland doesn't discount anything, no. anything inside never. the park. But There was never a sale. Uh, ad, the ad-ads are up. You can see them. Yes. The How exciting is that to see those? They're I'm, incredible. Are they? You can see them from the parking structure. And the parking structure is already kind of high, meaning that if you can see them from there, then they're going to be tall in person because this the it, it, it they already dug the quarry. Well, mm-hmm. I call it a quarry, but they already dug in the foundation. Right. I think next is to lay down the um, the cement for it. Okay. And then they're going to start building upward. But you can see the formation of the park already kind of taking place for Star Wars Land, but the ad-ads are there or the, the, the structure of the mm-hmm. – um, they haven't built around it yet, but the but the framing is there, and they're tall, and they look really, really cool. And, and of course, you did hear Bob Iger's um, announcement that he revealed in an interview earlier in the week. Which was? Uh, concerning Star Wars 9, 8 and 9, and Carrie Fisher. Yeah, I did read this, yes. That they will not be doing a computer-generated Carrie Fisher for 9. I know we had spoken about that here on the program where... Uh, we were wondering what they would do. They said, yet... Yet. They used a, a, a word that we were both like, oh, okay, well, they haven't decided but yet. But Bob did not use yet. Yeah, so it, it, it's sad that, you know, obviously there was a loss of life here. And Star Wars is the furthest thing from my mind, at least, when it comes to Carrie Fisher's passing. So, uh, I mean, out of respect, I think it's, it's the best decision to go forward. Uh, the same way that, the you know, the Joker kind of disappeared yeah. from Dark so, Knight Rises. So it'll be interesting to see how they recraft the script. Yeah, nine. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of rumors. Obviously, we can speak rumors all day here about Star Wars Episode Eight, but there was rumors that that Carrie Fisher's character, uh, General Leia, was going to meet her son face to face, and um, there was also a couple other things that were floating around. But who knows what's going to happen now? Right. But a lot. What, what we're going to see on the screen is no digital imprint of right. Carrie Fisher. It'll be all. It'll be all her. So it'll be interesting what they do, or if they just let eight play out. And then in the interim between the time period between eight and nine, when nine starts up, she will have been, she'll be gone. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, we have 600, uh, 600, that would be horrible, 262 days, 12 hours and 50 minutes to go until the release of Star Wars Episode Eight. Oh. Now, if if uh, last year's trend was anything concerning for me, at least, that we probably won't see pre-sale tickets until about a month of the film coming out. Right. And I don't like that. I know you don't. But you know what What just went on sale, pre-sale, this past week? Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yes. Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And I think that's almost close to sold out. I, I slept on that announcement. I, I tried to get tickets for my local theaters, but I'm not going to drive out too far. But that, that I love the trailers that they're starting to come out with. The trailers are phenomenal. And later in the program, you're going to get to hear a little bit of James Gunn talking about working on Guardians of the Galaxy 2 at the same time as Belko Experiment. I, I had um, a little bit of Star Wars news uh, that's really old, but I'd like to get your intake on it. We didn't talk about it on the program, but the first line that Luke Skywalker speaks to Rey has been revealed. Who are you? Who are you? And that kind of either lays to rest the fact that maybe she's not his daughter or, or he doesn't know. Or he doesn't want her to know. One or the other. There's obviously that uh, that the releasing of the line cleared nothing up whatsoever. No, nope, it just created more questions. Oh yeah, because now instead of we're like, oh, is that his daughter? Now it's more like, oh, well, no, he's hiding just, the fact that he's 
related to her. Yeah, it it created more questions. Yeah, so that 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 was interesting, and then as well as the Carrie Fisher news and uh, the merchandising line should be hitting the shelves soon, if not next month after Rogue One's released, and May for sure for the May Fourth celebration. You know, and while and you know mentioning Carrie Fisher, you know, yesterday was the memorial service that her brother Todd put together for her and for their mother Debbie Reynolds out at Forest Lawn. Um, beautiful, beautiful service. Uh, George Pinocchio was there covering it for ABC. But I have to say, if you want to see beautiful photographs and a wonderful chronology of the the timeline of the event as it was happening. Go to Facebook, look up Brian Donnelly, D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y, or go on to Twitter, or I think even on um, Instagram, Donnelly Wood. Um, Brian is an amazing, amazing photographer who captures everything around town, and he has put together a beautiful album of the memorial service yesterday. Uh, it's something that classic film fans and Star Wars fans alike will really appreciate seeing the photos that he took of every aspect of the service. So I would say please look up Brian Donnelly, Facebook, Donnelly Wood, Twitter, Instagram, and take a look at the photos. The album is really nice. Um, so kudos to Brian, who always does a wonderful job. In correlation to the uh, the Bob Iger announcement, yes, there was also details about the Han Solo standalone film. Yes. With Woody Harrelson coming out with a little bit more information about it. That is exciting. Uh, I, of course, Woody could also be diverting our attention. He could be, but I trust him. I don't think he's ever... I don't... I don't. He's, I like him as an actor and as a person. I really like Woody. So, I've interviewed him several times, and I really... I, I really have fun when I when I speak with Woody. We finally have an idea of when the age span will be. Yes. Loose of a... Han Solo's adventures. It's going to be between the ages of 18 and 24 years old. Yeah. About the time when we met him in episode four, he might have been like 28, 20. Yeah, he was still, he was in his late 20s. Yeah, maybe even 30. So this will be, this will be very interesting. Yeah, uh, hopefully we meet uh, Chewbacca or even. Supposedly. We see how. We will see how Chewie and Han meet. I hope it's a, it's a violent confrontation because that's how I always picture Whenever I picture them being friends, I picture them having been in a scruffle first. And then they kind of learn to mutually respect the other one. Because there's always this mutual respect between the two characters. Like, I can I can hurt you and you can hurt me, but why, yeah. why, why even bother to see which one of us is more is more powerful? Obviously, as the years went on, it was Chewie that dominates the uh, yes, spectrum. Yes, obviously. But I, I'd like to see that confrontation of them being uh, very mean to each other. And then okay. they become, char- they become well, friends. Well, we'll find know. out next year on that one. So, but now I got to ask you, did you ever watch the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers on TV? I've been on a really big nostalgia kick lately because I used to adore that program. I had the okay. action figures, I had the original action figures, I had shirts. Uh, it, my childhood consisted of three things Power Rangers, Space Jams, and Jurassic World. Oh, and Batman Forever. So, four things. Those four things were, if you look, go back into my entertainment culture thing, uh, Capsule, that would be the four main basis of my existence as a as a four to five year old child in the 90s so have you had a chance yet to see the new power rangers movie i'm i didn't because i had to go out this weekend to go visit family up north i i I hate to say this but power rangers is more important than visiting family i 
it's not even my family. It's my girlfriend's family. So there is no say. If it was my family, there's a say, right? But no, it's not even my family. But I'm going to go this weekend. You, I think, if you are a fan, I would catch it every once in a while because in the 90s, let's face it, I was already, how old was I in the 90s? Old. Um, But every once in a while on a Saturday morning, it'd be great to be flipping channels and stop and see Power Rangers. But what we now have, the new movie in the 21st century, written by John Gattins, directed by Dean Israelite, is fun, 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 fun. Yeah, I just, I was, I went nuts for the film when I saw it. And it shocked a lot of people that I would go crazy over the Power Rangers. It is, the story is so good. With the TV series, now I don't know if in the original 1975 Japanese Super Sentai, which preceded the Power Rangers in 1993, uh, when it came to the U.S., I don't know if they ever gave the origin story or if the Power Rangers were just the Power Rangers. Uh, they ha- they gave the origin story within the series. But it's not how they became Power Rangers. The theme song explains it. But yeah, every 90s show never shows you what happens. No. And it. the film, not only do we see how they become Power Rangers, but how they are selected through the fates and through destiny. But also... How they have to earn the right to be Power Rangers. You're not just chosen by the universe. You then have to earn it. Let me ask you one question. Yes. Brian Cranston. Yes. Perfect. As Zordon? Yeah. Disembodied Zordon? Is he, is he great? I have nothing but great. He is absolutely fabulous. And I have to say the scene stealer, though, is Elizabeth Banks as Rita Repulsa. I can't wait to watch this. Now, are they the original characters as the Red Rangers, the, ter- the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and then the... Well, we have what we have is we have our Power Rangers. We have our Red Ranger, a.k.a. Jason, played by uh, DeCray Montgomery. We have our Pink Ranger, Kimberly, played by Naomi Scott. Blue Ranger, who is my favorite ranger in the film. Uh, Billy, played by R.J. Kyler, and... Those fans of Me and Earl and the Dying Girl will remember R.J., who was a standout in that film. And he really steps up his acting game here. Uh, Yellow Ranger, Trini, is played by songstress Becky G. Uh, and Black Ranger, Zach, is played by Ludie Lin, who is a Muay Thai expert, who's got an athletic background. Out of our five Rangers, he's the only one with any kind of physical training or athletic background. So everybody started at ground zero to become Power Rangers. And yes, we do actually get to see Dino Rangers. Dino Rangers, which, for those of you that don't know the history, Dino Rangers first appeared in 1984. Uh, And then it was Hayam Saban, who loved the Dino Rangers so much that that is what made him want to do the Power Rangers show here in the United States. So, yes, we do get the we do get the Dino Rangers and a couple of them are really cool. And we also have snippets of the original theme song. How does that I don't know. I, don't, I actually I don't want to know. You don't want to no, know. No, do not tell me. I want to be surprised cuz someone already told me that the original theme song is incorporated in the yes. film really really uh, kind of bubbly in a sense. That's yes. how he described it, so I, I don't want to... Yes. Know. If you're going to say it, I'll just take my headphones off. No, I'm not going to say it. Okay. But I've got, I have to tell you, it. the film is so well done. 
on multiple levels, on a story level, what John Gattins has done, structuring the story, giving individuality to each of the actors and their characters, and then what Dean Israelite does from a visual standpoint in amping this up, uh, between the two, they address a lot of issues that teens today, these they come across as average teens. Issues of cyberbullying, bullying, family issues, teen angst, caring for, for ailing elders. All of this is covered in here. It is so timely for the 21st century and what teens are facing today. Um, so without any further ado, I'm going to let you hear my exclusive interview with screenwriter John Gattins. From beginning to end, it's about 15 minutes long. And then right after that, you get to hear my exclusive with Dean Israelite. And let me preface, John Gattins, you know his work, Varsity Blues, Summer Catch, Hardball, Need for Speed. He knows the teen genre. He knows teen minds. Um, but he also knows how to tell a story. So take a listen. Also the best is what you have done with this script for Power Rangers. Uh, thank you. You know, I've always been such an admirer of your work. You know, I was talking to, to some of the other press downstairs because they weren't familiar with other stuff mm -hmm. you've done. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you wrote Kong. I said, yes, he's written Kong. But you take a look at things like Summer Catch, mm -hmm. Hardball. Mm -hmm. It's like everything that you've done from a youth-oriented standpoint, from mm -hmm. a thematic standpoint, has all come together. Mm -hmm. Even Need for Speed all come together here with Power Rangers. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I just think it's a lovely blend of all everything that you've brought up to this point, all in one film, mm -hmm. with all the different aspects of your talent put together. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, something that strikes me with the film is we now see for the first time how the Power Rangers begin. Mm-hmm. And how they become Power Rangers. It's not just all of a sudden they're wearing a suit. Right, right. Was this in it something that was there from the get-go that was important that you were going to include? Yeah, I mean, I think that when Dean and I first um, started to talk about how to approach the movie, and especially these characters, we felt like in order for people to care about a movie... Um, we had to dig deep and we wanted to make it be have a contemporary kind of reflection of what we thought you know young people trying to figure out who they are would be mm. and especially kids from as they were talking about downstairs like from different cliques you yeah. know it's like and how did these kids come together and like it made me think like you say you reference these other films that I've worked on through the years like Coach Carter and like movies where like teenagers are trying to sort out their relationships with each other and mm -hmm. who they are and who do you hang out with and how does that all work? So it was really important because we did, like you said, we wanted to make an origin story for each of these five characters. And then after they're figuring out who they are, it's like they got to come together. They're kind of like, you know, tasked with mm -hmm. becoming a tribe and trying to, you know, be mm -hmm. successful at something. So it was important. Yeah. What were the challenges that you faced from a screenwriting standpoint into putting together the tasking mm -hmm. of what they had to endure? Because this is not an easy process. Yeah. And you don't spell it out for us. Right. It's, you develop this, it's very, you know, undercurrent. It was the challenge, I think, that Dean and I both faced was trying to manage, like, we kept making the joke that it's like, the, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man was a great movie. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. It's an origin story. But it was one teenager gets bit by a spider and he becomes like Spider-Man. It's like, we had five. Yeah. So we kept saying, but we want to honor each of them in a way to make these characters, like, I think Becky was saying, where it's like, 
kids will look at it and say, that's me. Or like, that they want to see themselves in the movie. So it's like to be able to manage five movies inside of a bigger movie that's inside of a bigger movie was a challenge and hard to do. So it was fun and the actors were great and, you know, uh, we had great development people too. So we tried to work really hard to honor each of those characters. It was How many iterations of each of the Power Ranger characters did you go through and did it, did that change once casting was in place because each one of these mm-hmm. actors really does fit mm-hmm. the persona mm-hmm. of their Power Ranger character. I think we had the basic building blocks of each character kind of in our mind and then the casting process started and it was a bit of a good marriage between like, wow, she's amazing at this and there's an element of her that comes through really clearly so it's like we continued to shape throughout because I was there for all of the filming too mm-hmm. so it was it was fun because they were so collaborative as you can see them they immediately clicked with each yeah. other even though they're from all over the world it's like they yeah. immediately saw each other really clearly and helped each other kind of bring it that much further yeah you look at them now and when you realize what the story is about them having to connect at a base level oh my god that I, that I will die for you in yeah. order to morph mm-hmm. it's like you look at them now and it's like you kidding me? They couldn't come up with that? Yeah, yeah. Because they are that connected. It's true, it's true. And you don't see that. No, it's rare. I mean, it is rare. And like I said down there, it's like, I haven't really done a movie with a young cast like this in a little while. Yeah. And the world's changed. It's like, when I first started making movies with young teenage characters, who I love, by the way, I love writing teenagers. I just think they're so interesting and full of energy and unpredictable and... You know, fascinating to kind. Of, now I have teenage sons, so like I have it by my whole life. I live with it. So, but I, I think the world has changed so much, man. There was no internet when we were making Varsity Blues. Do you know what I mean? There was no like it wasn't the cyber world and social media that exists now. So it's like the interconnectivity yeah. between young people is such a different, fast-moving mm-hmm. universe that it wasn't. Well, and looking back over your career, it's like Hardball. Mm-hmm. I still remember that was the very first film I reviewed right after nine eleven. Yes. Uh huh. And I mean, it kind of fell. Everything fell under the radar after yeah, that. Yeah. But yeah. I thought that was the most appropriate film to review at that point mm-hmm. because of the depth that you went into with e- not just Keanu's character, mm-hmm. but each of those young ball players. Mm-hmm. You really got into the heads and the lives of these kids. It's interesting you say that because it is. It's it's very similar to what we did here. It's like we had to kind of take a team and highlight personalities and challenges that each of those kids on that team had mm-hmm. and try to give them enough service that you're invested, you know, and still try to keep the bigger movie inside the movie going, it's, even though we had smaller movies inside right. it, you know. And I remember the night of that premiere was Monday, September 10th. And we were out late celebrating the fact that, you know, we, we had finally, it was a very hard movie to make. We shot in Chicago in some yeah. really tough areas. And, like, there was a lot of challenges to that movie. And we felt like, wow, we finally, after all these years, get this movie done. And my head had hit the pillow at, like, 3 in the morning, only to be woken up, like, a few hours later with, like, the world looks like it's over. Yeah. It was really... And a lot of people wrote what you wrote, which was saying, like, we need this movie right now about that movie. And, uh... Yeah, that was a challenge. I think very fondly of that movie. You know, Michael B. Jordan was a young actor in that movie. Right. He was phenomenal then and phenomenal now. So I always love to see him and stuff because it makes me think of that time. The first time I ever met him when his mom brought him to this rehearsal in Chicago and she said, this is my son, Michael Jordan. 
And we were in Chicago. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, it's like, okay, so your son's name is Michael Jordan. It was like, yeah, it was amazing. It was, it was amazing. And Keanu was so great to work with. And so, yeah. Yeah, but I, you know, I look at that, and that's one thing I love about your work is I see these patterns and these themes. And for whatever reason, the stars align, and they pop up when we need them. Yeah. Yeah, and, I know. And, this is another time. Yeah, it's a and, and I think that this is another one here. Mm-hmm. You know, with all the plethora of things that teens face now and all the challenges. You know, and here, even with Zordon, Zordon has a very come-to-Jesus moment here mm-hmm. where he's growing as well. How do, do you cherry-pick the issues for each person to be challenged with? Mm-hmm. And even Rita, mm-hmm. Repulsa, she's mm-hmm. got... Mm-hmm. Issues. I mean, we've got different degrees of bullying, cyberbullying. Mm-hmm. We have the autistic spe- uh, mm-hmm. spectrum. Mm-hmm. But home life, mm-hmm. mothers, fathers, mm-hmm. taking cars, mm-hmm. doing illegal things mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. ankle bracelets. Yeah. How do you, you crammed in so much, but how did you, how did you go about picking these and then also developing that, what becomes an almost paternal shift mm-hmm. in Cranston's order? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think of is the cyberbullying because all of my kids have phones, you know, mm-hmm. and there's such a dangerous portal in your pocket. It's like I got asked to speak at my nephew's high school graduation a couple of years ago, and I remember we had so much fun. I told funny stories, and I knew some of the kids who were graduating, so it was fun, but I said, if you have any advice for you, I said – that little plastic device in your pocket, I was like, use it for the power of good, not evil. I was like, and stay connected with each other. I was like, you can help each other with that thing. It doesn't have to be just a thing that's about likes. It can be just checking in on people. It's like, how are you? It's like, you good? Like those kind of things to try to like use some of the stuff that they face and turn it to be a good thing as opposed to mm-hmm. – so like I think about the cyberbullying thing because it just – for me, it's what I – it's what I fear in my life because of my kids and the access that they have. So that was so important. I felt like this movie couldn't exist with characters this age that didn't at least speak to that mm-hmm. to some extent. And I think Naomi, that's such an important part for her for her character. So like we just tried to pick really relevant things, you know. You really know, and relevant of course, Zach's character, something mm-hmm. that I loved, we actually see a son having to care for an elderly, ailing parent. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't see that. Yeah, but it exists in our world. Mm-hmm. It's like economic challenge for teenagers is really big. It's like you could study stats and find out how many teenagers are also breadwinners in their family. They're trying to go to high school, but they're also trying to like help keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's really relevant. It exists. We're having this conversation here. Trust me, that's happening inside of three miles from where you and I are sitting right now. We know that. Yeah. So that was important for us too. It felt really revel- relevant and of this moment. Was there anything you wanted to include that you just couldn't – it just didn't fit? Well, you've so referenced before the, – the thing you said before, which I agree with, is that I would have liked the opportunity to see a little bit more of the parents, you know, just to kind of see those relationships and how they potentially evolved. And that was something we were challenged with, and we did try, and we did shoot yeah. some. And, you know, it just was one of those things where the movie kept – coming back to the voice of the movie was really these kids. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that I would, I and mean, maybe that's just me because we're parents, you know what I mean? Like being older and being of that generation, like I kind of would love to, you know, well, have it, would that be, it would be nice to give more, to give more depth to why the kids feel the way they exactly, feel. Exactly, exactly. Because there's always a starting point yeah. that causes this. Yeah. And nine, nine, nine times out of ten, it goes, it, oh yeah, absolutely. It it's family back. of origin stuff. Yeah. 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 You know, now because there is, you know, 
you've been getting more action heavy in your films. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because and this one especially. Yeah. Need for Speed, obviously, chase scenes. Right. And that was all practical stunts where this is really intense, like is, created digitally. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah. So now are you writing these visual concepts out? Are you envisioning this as you're writing the script? Or are you leaving that to Dean's imagination? It's like, okay, we have a fight sequence. Okay, they're going to train. Right. Or do you get into specifics? Because there are some Yeah, there's some, well, very specific. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, it was somewhere in the middle, I think the truth lies, in that Dean and I worked very collaboratively with, uh, you know, all of the production, like the head of every department. So it's like we were constantly in a, in a war room of, like, looking at images and seeing crude you know sequences kind of put together and animatics so that we mm. can kind of continue to try to infuse the drama and the story inside those visuals which is kind of what our job is but also be able to stitch that to the human stories that we're talking about so and again because i was there so much and the whole time really like i think it was important and that's what helped us kind of do it so i guess the answer that's a long guess is the answer so yeah. you're actually putting yeah. in there the details it's yeah. important because yeah. everything is so time consuming and expensive that it's like you have you can write one line of dialogue you can write one line of description that's like you know and Manhattan crumbles into the ocean it's like I can write that it takes me a second but that right. would cost and take so much it's like so you have to be really conscientious about how much we can do inside of the resources we have mm-hmm. both time and money and energy and actors and performers and yeah and of course here but for you know for Letty None of the kids had done any action stuff. I know, before. I know, but they're all really athletic, and that was incredible. Like Ludi joked about it downstairs. Like he, like he's incredible. I mean, oh. he really is incredible. Well, he and does I think that tie. yeah, he does. Yeah. I mean, he has a whole like life of doing incredibly fit. He had this thing. Well, I don't even know what you call it. It was like this unicycle, but it was like electric, and it didn't have. And like he would ride it through the streets of Vancouver. And there's, like, shots of him that people took of, like, this is Ludi Lin from the Power Rangers movie. It's like, he would put on his ball cap and, like, on days off, he would be racing this thing around. It's like it was from another planet. So he's, like, it's incredibly athletic kid. And I think that everyone kind of followed his lead a bit when it came Mm -hmm. to a lot of the stunt work. But they were incredibly game, really athletic. And we had, you know, a great crew of people to kind of help keep them safe. Mm -hmm. But it was taxing. It was hard. For you as a writer, does it... Does it give you great joy when you see that casting is so good so that your vision on the paper, oh, your yeah. words on the paper, can actually be brought to life the way you envision them? Absolutely. And for this movie in particular, for them to come like so open-hearted and open-minded and be like, you know, help us. Like, what else? Like, what about this? Like Dacre was saying downstairs, like, they would come with ideas that would make them fit better into their suits, so to speak. It's like, mm-hmm. and that was really helpful and fun and collaborative. And because sometimes you work with actors who've been doing it forever and they're a little bit like, this is how I'm going to do it. It's like, okay. But it's fun to work with a young, open cast who's, you know, really, really game. You know, it's not like Bill Hader was voiced forever. Yeah. Like, he doesn't yeah. need direction. Exactly. It's yeah. Like, we had a great time with he, him. He here's was. A picture, here's a picture yeah. of Alpha Five. Right, right. That's all he he was so funny. I mean, we had a really, really good time because obviously it was after the movie was assembled and yeah. stuff that we could kind of sit with him and show him sequences, and we had a riot. We laughed so much. <laughs> so, you know, now what will you take with you from this experience? You know, as I mentioned, melding your different disciplines and themes mm-hmm. from prior films, mm-hmm. it all comes together here with mm-hmm. this one mm-hmm. beautifully. What will you take from this process into future works? Well, I think, you know, 
like I talk, it's just like I can't stop thinking about Varsity Blues, which I hadn't thought about until I literally was sitting up there looking at these five young actors, and I was like, oh my god, dude, we did this. This was 1998 all over again. And I was like, but it's so different because I had such a. I was really much closer in age to those actors when we made that movie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like we hung around like we were buddies. We're here. I feel like a parent to them because I'm much closer to their parents' age. You know what I mean? So to me, I guess what I take from it is the idea that it's like, look, you know, I have to continue to evolve. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And rethink some things I think and maybe change my thoughts about things because now I am a parent and now I am a little bit more like responsible and think about the words I say on a page are relevant. Kids are going to – it's going to – you know, there's a little responsibility to it I guess is what I'm saying and I appreciate that. So. And what's next? What's next? Or do, uh, we, or do we know yet? I don't know. Will what... I get a sequel to this? I want a sequel. <laughs> we had a great time making this movie. We really did. And it was a great team and a great, like, between Dean and the crew and Would everybody. Would you come back and write a sequel? Um, I think so. I think that, I'll tell you this, I would be involved for sure. I mean, it's, you know... I loved it. I think we all had a great experience. So I think everybody would raise their hand if given the chance. I think so. And that was my exclusive interview with screenwriter John Gattins. And I have to point out that the story of the this the film uh, Power Rangers story came from uh, Matt Sazama, who wrote Dracula Untold, The Last Witch Hunter. <clears throat> so it's got a good pedigree for where the idea came from. And now let's just jump into director Dean Israelite, who will talk about creating this entire visual pantheon of delights for us with Power Rangers. I am in love with this film. Oh, thank you. Good. I'm so glad. It truly is fun. That's the first word I thought of when I started watching was fun. That's so good. Uh, It just... I can't believe you pulled this off. (laughs) The visuals in this film... John's script is one thing. Right. With all the themes that you right. pull in, the individuality, the cohesiveness, the need for collaboration, much like making a film. Right. Um, but I've got to ask you, Dean, about when you approach, sat down to approach this, to come up with a visual palette. Because I see with the, your production design, even with you know your underwater sequencing, we've got this theme of undulation, like a yin right. and yang right. that runs through everything. Right. You know, how did you go about deciding how this was going to look and how you were going to pull it off with Matthew, your cinematographer? Well, in terms of the – it's interesting you talk about sort of the undulation of things and the water. That was – the movie be feeling elemental was always important to me. I think, one, because I wanted it to feel very grounded. Um, and there was just something about actually grounding it with elements and feeling like the rock and feeling this kind of like – Elemental aspect to the coins and to the wall and to the suits. Um, uh, gave it kind of a real texture and a tactile feel, I thought. But also because I wanted the movie on a whole to feel organic mm-hmm. and there to be kind of... Um, and that's where sort of the water came from too, was that idea. But above all of that... Philosophically, for me, the movie is a transformation. It's about transformations. The original show is called Mighty Morphing Power Rangers. So to me, it's about a metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. So there's iconography that speaks to that, like the water. Mm-hmm. They go in, they kind of are reborn from it. And um, 
those are kind of thematic concepts that I wanted to bring visually. Mm-hmm. And then with Matt, he and I have been trying to develop this sort of style that won't go in every movie, obviously, but what we were trying to do with Project Almanac and then what we're trying to bring here is if you're making a movie about teenagers, you have to realize the way they produce and consume their own images. Mm-hmm. And the way they're always on Instagram and I'm on Instagram and, 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 and Vine and YouTube. And there is an aesthetic that I think has developed from all of that that feels unflinchingly sort of real and organic and improvised. And it, the movie isn't. But we have been trying to develop the style to get the camera and the actors to be choreographed in such a way that you feel like you could take freeze frames from this movie and it could be an awesome Instagram mm-hmm. feed. And that's how we sort of approached it. And our visual references are not, you know, we watch, we both love films and have a deep knowledge of it. And sometimes we go to specific scenes um, of films. But a lot of our walls when we're in pre-production are just covered by images from Instagram and uh, and and just what we feel are like cutting edge uh, video directors mm-hmm. um, and cinematographers. And so that's how I feel like we got to a style where it doesn't feel like what you would expect a superhero movie to feel like. Yeah, no, this has a very old, very timeless feel to it right. that harkens to the mystics of the ages. Right. You know, and we even see that with Zordon, with that effect right. is just not just moving the face with the undulating rods in the right. wall, but then you could backlight it with, with red right. and color. Right. Because color is very important in this movie. Totally. You know, what kind of challenges, because of the distinct color palette for each of the rangers, but then you have some really incredible sequences underground, you've got your your special effects, your visual special effects. Right. How did that the color palette affect Matthew and yours lighting design as a whole? Because I know depending on the lighting, it alters your color frame of reference. Right. Um, I mean, it's a really good question. The, um, you know... We didn't light the sets knowing that we were going to have sort of colorful suits necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we just try and what we try to make everything feel as naturalistic as possible, as kind of um, uh, uh, um, organic and 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 tactile as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came to kind of lighting the suits, which is a big deal, you yeah. know. Matt would have to bring out all of the all of the toys, mm-hmm. you know, and he he treated it like a car commercial basically, where you know you've got to really respect how you're going to get that color to look just right, and how you know our suits have layers to them, and there's an inner layer and an outer layer, and mm-hmm. how you're going to see that transparency. So there were almost like two separate philosophies. Almost, it's like we kept our visual palette the way we wanted it to mm-hmm. be in terms of feeling kind of real and organic. And then when we had a lot of color and had to bring out the suits, we really everything slowed down on set at those mm-hmm. moments to really get that right. Yeah, and as visually appealing as the film is and the tonal bandwidth that goes through, that follows through with the story itself. Right. Was there ever any kind of difficulty in developing a marriage of the two, a marriage of the story and the visuals? Because you have these five very distinct personalities right. with their own backstories, their own individuality. Right. You didn't sacrifice any of that for the look of the film, right. nor did the look of the film dictate who the characters were. Right. It's an interesting question. Um, it... it 
it didn't re, um, it, 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 we, hmm. we tr what we try to do was um, we tackled it less about sort of like here's each character and what each character's vibe or look needs to be because ultimately they are connected some right. way so, so it is helpful that the, the movie's sort of visual palette then does give you the impression that something is connected that they're mm -hmm. always going to be connected um, so for us visually it was more about connection than it was about separating them um, and what we really try and do is we, we sort of look at sequences and I don't mean that in terms of like an action thing just moments right. this sequence needs to have this feeling because it's in this part of the movie both lighting but also camera mm -hmm. style and blocking and, and that's how mm -hmm. we usually break it down um, and then try and have a cohesiveness between those sequences or a juxtaposition between mm. those sequences. But th that's more how we, uh, how we looked at it. Mm -hmm. How beneficial was it to you and to Matthew to have use of Red Dragon and Phantom? Because Phantom for action sequences, it's through the roof. Right. And you have some of the most intense action sequences, both impractical right. and then layered with your special effects. Right. The I love the Phantom. Uh, I think it was Matt's idea to bring it. I can't remember. I, or I had said, or we both had said, there are going to be moments that have to be almost like suspended in time. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to bring the Phantom. We did a bunch of tests. And it's, it, 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 it really did bring an aesthetic to the movie and sort of becomes really integral and part of the language of the movie. Um, and then why I wanted to, why we wanted to um, work on the red is that we felt like we could be very nimble with the camera and that's always sort of important to us um, that you can map lights really quickly we're always shooting mm -hmm. and we're always moving fast and I like it uh, you know very seldomly are we bringing dollies out and so I, I, I like it to be able to like just get the camera up there now and you're going to move here and from take to take it will differ so the choice of the red is more about kind of the versatility of the actual apparatus mm -hmm. um, but obviously it produces you know an Beautiful amazing image and yeah. they keep getting they keep getting better and better yeah I mean the dragon is so far beyond the epic totally totally I remember we you know we had sort of skin tone problems I thought with the epic a little yeah. bit and we didn't have that on this at all yeah I've heard a lot of directors said that the epic oh they love the epic but it was the skin tone right. issue and they were having to use different makeups in order to compensate for that. Yeah, I didn't uh, see it until we got into the DI and Project Almanac that there, w there did seem to be sort of some skin tone things. But the the my, I, I just think the movie looks great and it looked it's such a testament to Matt. It just looked good from the days. Mm -hmm. It just you know, and the DI was you know we had Stefan we like to have Stefan Sonnenfeld who's phenomenal and he took it to another level. But we were never like, what should this scene look like? You know, it was always kind of like the decisions had been made. It was very easy in the DI. Mm -hmm. What led you to Andrew Menzies as your production designer and collaborating with him to develop the beautiful interior cave work, the very organic look, right. the, that undulation in the wall. I mean, some of those, they're, they're very stark in coloring, but they're beautiful. Right. I mean, basically his creativity. You know, I met a lot of people. I like to take a long time to cast the roles. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean the actors. I mean everybody that's going to be on the team. Um, so I take a lot of meetings. And I really knew after my meeting with Andrew that he was going to be hard to beat because 
not only does his body of work, you know, everyone has great, you know, that I was meeting had great resumes, and so you know they can do the job, but he would just come up with mm-hmm. ideas, idea after idea after idea, and I really like that, and I riff off that, and I throw out ideas, and we came up with the water idea in our first meeting. You know, I said, I, I want it to be in a cave, and I want them to, like, kind of have to swim through some water, and he said, why don't they go out the other side? And that created... That was the impetus for like the, one of the best sequences of mine that that, that are in the water uh, that that's in the movie. So it really is just his constant creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and speaking of the water, and I mentioned it to the kids, and they didn't get to answer that part of my question at the press conference. But you know, they're all coming in, but for one, they don't have any action experience. Right. They are young, so they are more nimble and athletic right. than the rest of us. But underwater sequencing is hard on your really best hard. day. Totally. And, you know, nail-biting on your worst day. Right. And here you've got kids that they all had to learn because you didn't use doubles for them. We we did in some of the water stuff, mm-hmm. but when they're on top of the water and they're sw- – like every time you're seeing their faces, it's, it's them. It's them. You know, so they're treading water on top of the water for a long time. And, you know, what's hard about water is you don't want them to come out of the water. That's slow. They come out. Now they have to take a moment and, and now you have to get them back in the water and the water clarity starts to diminish over the day, over the course of the day. Mm-hmm. So you, you're you trying your best to keep them in the water, guys. Stay in the water. Mm-hmm. Stay in the water. So you're in the water for hours. Yeah. It is. It was brutal for them. It really was. Um, and they're swimming under and, and when you see them swimming under the water, they are truly under the water holding their breath. Yeah. RJ is holding his breath for a really long time. Um and the it, it, it kicked their ass. It did. It even kicked our stunt doubles' asses because I remember we it was a few days later and we were going to go rehearse some of the fight scenes and and one of the stunt guys was he was shaken a little bit and, and we said to him like how are you doing? It's like it's just been it's been a really hard few days. It's like the water really wow. took it out of me because we shot with the kids for two days and then second unit came in for another whole day wow. in the water and it's tiring. It's tiring. Yeah. And and the problem is, you know, like as the director, you can't be too sympathetic about it, you know, because you just, you got to get the work done yeah. and, and um, you and, do, you push them really hard. And you got Wick and Marty as producers who are right. saying, get it done, right. get it done. Right, right, right. Yeah, but I mean, it is, it's beautiful sequencing, and I have to commend you on the clarity of the underwater sequences. It really is beautiful. Yeah, and that's what, I mean, Matt, you know, lit it beautifully, and, and um, the, we had this really cool sort of hydroscope thing that they mm-hmm. hadn't worked with before, but it's basically a crane that goes underwater, and it's oh. it, the, the camera's super versatile. So we had our three operators, but then we also had the crane that could go underwater, and that that it helped with the speed. We could we could shoot fast with that because you can get the camera in, in, in the right place very quickly. Um, but you know, I just think Matt was so clever in terms of when we're shooting them and you're feeling the top of the canyon. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lighting trick. That's not visual yeah. effects, and that's just you're shooting down into the bottom of the pool and Matt has created a lighting rig that that mm. feels like the top of a canyon. It's very clever. It's it's fantastic. But I have to ask what what made you what what told you that you were up to the task 
of doing the Power Rangers. And ha having done it, what did you learn that you're now going to take forward? Right. It's a great question. I, when I read the script, I just felt like I knew what the movie could be. And I felt like I knew. I just had a feeling. I just felt like I'd come off Project Almanac. I was exploring these themes. I was exploring this kind of style. Uh, I was exploring this tone and I felt like this was an evolution of that and I, I felt like the tools I had used for that were really sharp. You know, it's like being an athlete and feeling very practiced in a certain thing. I felt really practiced in that. So I, I just felt like I could do it. Um, then you get onto the movie and you realize how much you don't know mm -hmm. and how much you, you, you didn't realize you don't know and learned an exponential amount and It, it, it was film school in a way. You know, it's, you know it, it, it taught me to make a movie with so many variables that I'd never tackled before. And I feel, I feel good. It's given me confidence about working on this level. And that was <clears throat> Power Rangers director Dean Israelite. Uh, my review of Power Rangers is out and about across the country now. It's also up on MovieSharkDeBlore.com. You can see it in its entirety. And there will be more clips and things from the my interviews with John and Dean and the cast uh, popping up throughout the week. But go, go Power Rangers. So let's let's switch here and go from the fun of Power Rangers to the fun of uh, to the fun of madness, mayhem, and blood and guts of the Belko experiment, uh, written by James Gunn, directed by Greg McLean. Greg, you know, you may remember from the Wolf Creek franchise. James wrote this. He <clears throat> was balancing it as producer and writer at the same time. He's been working on Gardens of the Galaxy too. He could not tackle directing two films at the same time. So he did hand it off to Greg. I like to equate the Belco experiment to Ben Wheatley's High Rise meets Battle Royale meets Hunger Games. It is incredible. It's a great commentary on social strata in the corporate world. Uh, star, Amazing cast. Tony Goldwyn, John Gallagher Jr., Michael Rooker, of course, who is in every James Gunn movie known to mankind. Uh, Sean Gunn, the wonderful Rusty Schwimmer, Abraham Ben Ruby, Melanie Diaz. There's a hostage takeover of an entire building by an outside force. And it comes down to very Darwinian survival of the fittest, uh, which means killing everyone around you. So what do you do to survive? Uh, it is fascinating to watch. It started with a dream that James had, and then he brought in the Yale studies of 1961 from Stanley Milgram uh, regarding violating ethical standards within oneself and their morality in order to obey authority. Uh, and you put it all together, and only from the mind from James Gunn could you come up with a horror film like The Belko Experiment. So during the roundtable, a very entertaining and enlightening and fun roundtable with James Gunn, And here's what he had to say about writing the Belco experiment. I wanted to ask you, James, it's, we already, it, it's already been said that, you know, the initial inspiration for this film came from your dreams. Yes, that's true. Okay. How do I you dreamt the trailer for anybody. Okay. This, I mean, number one, I'm scared about what dreams you're having. But they, they get worse than that. That's, that's <laughs> not sure. And better, um, much better. But then you take that visual concept and idea that you had... 
then you meld it with the Milgram experiment. Essentially, yeah, sure, the exactly, right, yeah, exactly. Which yeah. are beyond fascinating. I'm curious yeah. about that process of that marriage of the visual and then tracking down Milgram's work yeah. and bringing that in. Well, I, listen, I mean, there's been a lot of experiments that have been outside the bounds of what is normally considered ethical. And something about me, which is, you know, sort of horrifies me about myself, is I'm really interested in what people did in those extreme situations. And um, being a writer, I think this is simply an exploration of what would people do in this particular extreme exploration. And as broad of an idea as it is, treating it as, as seriously as possible. And I was lucky to have a bunch of actors with me who treated it equally seriously. Without them, I think the movie would not work. So... Um, I think it was uh, it was it, it was not a really pleasant writing experience to be honest. Mm -hmm. It was a much more pleasant filming experience because really dark days, people crying, and then we went off and had fun, and it was just the best group of real actors I've ever been around. Um, but the uh, the process of writing it was was not you know it's like you, you know I love my characters, I fall in love with my characters, and uh, and to be able to be creating these characters while simultaneously slaughtering them. I'm really the voice. I'm the one who's making them do this stuff. And it, it was it was not it is not unpleasant. Well, it may have been unpleasant and when you watch it some of you may find it very exhilarating and entertaining. Others may cringe at the amount of blood, madness, mayhem, uh, and mutilation that is occurring, like any good corporate structure out there. But then, you know, for James it's like he's also gotta think. Did he go too far? Would he go too far? How much is too much? Not that I wrote. I think there were things that when we were going through the cut of the film, there were moments that we knew were, it's a very delicate balance. And everybody's tastes are different. I think the movie's going to be way too extreme for a lot of people. Um, but you want, to, you want to be careful that there's enough emotion and really like love between the characters to balance the horror of what's happening on screen. So with some some emotion and some comedy, you can kind of pull back from it a little bit. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you don't want to be hitting that same key on the piano again and again and again and again, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, it was a very delicate balance with the execution scene because it was incredibly long scene in the way they shot it. And, you know, Tony Goldwyn is going around and picking people and his picking it was just like very fascinating about him taking a long time to try to figure out who he was going to choose and why. Um, but it did get to, it got to be too much, you know, and the same thing with him shooting people, just, it got to be too much for me. And I use myself as a barometer and that's a pretty high yeah. barometer. Um, so yeah, there were, there were times during the cutting that things were too much, but during shooting, no, not so much. And of course, James talks about balance of, you know, pushing the envelope within writing the film and visually constructing the film. But then how does he balance Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and Belko? Belko is shooting down in Colombia. He's still working on Guardians. You know, how do you keep all the balls in the air? Well, I mean, I would say they're both about human nature. I, I would say that, you know, for me, you know, in all honesty, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is the most personal film I've ever made by far. Um, I had 100% creative freedom. Had a hundred was a hundred percent, not a hundred percent, but mostly a hundred percent financial freedom to, to create whatever was in my brain. Uh, so there's a very personal relationship I have to it. 
But being able to make a totally different movie that's a totally different direction, that touches a totally different series of nerves, um, allowed me, during the making of Guardians, to be able to jump back and forth between two things and each serve the other. Uh, for three years, I've done nothing practically but make Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, from the writing through the pre-production, production, and now the, the editing. And so being able to go down to Columbia for a month and be in a completely different environment, it's like you know when you focus at one spot on the wall for too long, it becomes three spots, and that's the thing I'm trying to avoid. So it was a way of like cleaning my brain so that I could go on. And at the same t- time, I've learned so much uh, since I was making, you know, simply in, you know independent films about movies in general, uh, to be able to go and do Belco, I was able to apply what I had learned there on that movie. So they really work really well together, as different as they may seem. And I like, you know, I love old time. I like Howard Hawks. You know, he's one of my favorite movie directors because he was able to switch between <laughs> genres and do completely different things. My only regret is that I don't have more years of my life because there's a lot of things that I want to do that I simply don't have the time to do. And, you know, you hear James mention Howard Hawks. You know, it is, if we had time for Greg McLean, you'd hear Greg McLean talking, director of Belco, talking about maintaining that line of Hitchcockian suspense. And, of course, it's so nice to see these younger directors and filmmakers who do go back to cinema's roots, to the classic filmmakers, to the John Fords, to the Howard Hawks, to the Hitchcocks, especially since next week is my favorite time of the year. It is TCM Film Festival next week. And in keeping with that, since we we don't have enough time for another clip today, so let's delve a little into TCM Film Festival. Um... Because next week, our guests are going to be returning. Some of my favorite TC- fellow TCM party peeps, uh, Kristen Lopez, will be w- calling in again. Uh, Aurora Desmond, a.k.a. Citizen Screen, will be calling in. Uh, Paula Guthat will be calling in as well. And I do believe that, uh, that Kelly Pratt, um, our diehard Cary Grant fan, I think Kelly is calling in also, the theme this year at TCM Film Festival is comedy. So there are a lot of, of comedies in the lineup. But also the first day of the festival, which will be Thursday the 6th, and we're going to talk about this next Monday on the show, will be honoring Robert Osborne. You heard us break the news here on Behind the Lens the morning that he passed. Um, we will have thoughts and Hopefully some of my clips of interviews with Robert next week interwoven interwoven with our guests as we look at all things TCM Film Festival. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 